Okay, well, so as you read forward, um, if you would make marginal notes, and we'll do this a couple times again, probably not next week, but we'll wait another week or two. Okay? All right, let's go ahead and uh, jump into the material for today. So we spent some time focusing on understanding the person's needs. This is where we're at, right? Did I count right? Yes. So as we've done before, let's talk about the goal here. To get to know the person by asking good questions and listening well. Our goal is to understand the person, not just the problem itself. So we don't want to just think of people as sins walking around or categories. I don't need to... I need to know something of what the Bible says about fear, but I also really need to know this fearful person right now and what is going on in his or her soul. And this would include, as your notes will tell you, the um, various situation, behavior, heart. Proverbs 4.23, above all else, guard your heart, there's the wellspring of life. And then you go to 25, 20 verse 5. The purposes of a man's heart are deep waters, but a man of understanding draws them out. It's this picture of a wise person is one who can somehow plumb the depths and try to understand what's going on, I think, in someone else's life. So the question, the measure, is can I view life the way the person does? Can I, not to, not to sound too psycho-babalistic, that's a word, but can I truly climb into that person's head and look at life through that lens? Can I climb up into the Statue of Liberty and, and get into her head and look out through the eyes? That kind of imagery is what I'm talking about. Because if I can see life the way the other person sees that life, then I can understand what's going on in their world. So we want to ask questions. And again, just as some of these goals here, they, they have multi-parts. So that. I want to ask questions so... So and so I gain the information, and then point two here, that I interpret it biblically. And here we'll come back to the three-tree model and the six boxes as an organizing grid for what we learn about people. And I'll, I'll show you a little bit of that uh, today. <coughs> and then, don't miss this, to assure the person that I understand him so that he feels understood. It is not enough for you to understand the other person. That's necessary, but it's insufficient. The person must believe that you understand him or her. They must feel understood. Uh, there are many times I really do believe I understand my wife. And... Sometimes, as we go further in the discussion, it proves that I am right, but sometimes it's not. I'm not right. But even if I think I understand the other person, if the other person, other person doesn't think I understand, 
then they're not going to be as receptive to any direction because they'll put the wall up and say, well, you, you don't understand. And honestly, they might be right. You really don't understand. But you do understand possibly, but you haven't communicated that. So we're going to have to talk about what it means not only to clarify what people are saying, but to confirm back to them, to, to share back with them. So let me give you a kind of scenario here. Sometimes it's correct to rephrase the question or to ask them, do I understand correctly that your biggest concern is X or yep. Y or Z? And, and, and talk out there and showing that, you know, that you're just not making a list to pray about. Or, and then I ask people sometimes when they ask me to pray, I ask them to, to tell me a little bit more about the situation so I can make my prayers specific rather than just pray about it. And, and sometimes it, they, they don't know what... They, 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 they can't get specific. They're just in an anxiety state. But I, I just uh, I wonder sometimes if they really know what they want you to pray about. So, um, other than yeah, we'll have to talk here today about the skill of clarifying and right. asking those clarifying questions and then feeding back to them. Okay, so here's the situation. You have it on the wall there. One of your pastors asks you to contact Deb. She's a member of your church. Because you've just learned, or the pastor has just learned, that her husband Don just left her and has moved out. Okay, so here's the question. What is Deb experiencing? What do you think? You don't know. You don't know. She's building up her objections. Yeah. She may be glad. Yeah, she, she may be glad. Maybe <laughs> <laughs> glad. Maybe wait to the end. It's true. It's true. That's really good. All right. You guys are good. You guys are really good because the answer I want to give you is what was just said. Now, what uh, we typically would answer in this situation are a lot of very, very good possibilities, very good candidates to answer for the answer here. Uh, revenge. Anger. Fear. Shock. Embarrassment. Shame. What's... What's my friends going to say? What's my mother going to say? What are my in-laws going to say? My kids. Despair. What was me? Where, where am I going to go? Uh, I guess I said anger. Anger at who? At what? The church for not having bailed her out before it happened. Where was the church to discern this? Yeah. What else? Who else? Anger God, God, I've been living, trying to be a good wife. And this is what you allow to happen in my world. Anger against the husband, anger against the other woman. Um, but, you know, I, one of you said, uh, I, what was the phrase you said? She might be glad. Yeah, glad, relieved. He was a bad guy. He's, he, yeah, what you don't know is he was abusive. Or what you don't know is maybe she wants out of this marriage. 
And now she might have a ticket to get out. She can't initiate, you know, Bible-believing church, you know, divorce apart from whatever biblical grounds, maybe. But in this case, she might have the out. Or maybe there's a relief. Women I've talked to in this situation, I, I suspected this all along. I sensed there was something. But he flat out denied it all the time. In fact, he said, you're paranoid. He accused me of being paranoid. But now I see that I was right. I'm not crazy. Um, relief. Yeah. So this is a concept that Paul Tripp talks about in the Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands book, which I would recommend to you. And that book, he talks about an entry gate there, the concept of an entry gate. And what he says is an entry gate is not the situation. It's how the person experiences that situation. So the same situation for Deb might be one in which she's just totally filled with fear, whereas someone else in the same situation might be totally uh, filled with rage. And how you approach Deb will depend on where she's at. So our first step is to understand what's going on in Deb's uh, how is Deb how is, how is Deb experiencing this situation? That's what Paul Tripp means by the entry gate. Now, there's some dangers here. It's the danger of making assumptions. You and I come to every relationship, at least a significant relationship, with assumptions about that person. And let me tell you the three three, and I, maybe this isn't exhaustive, but Three sources of our assumptions about another person. One is, and particularly now someone who's suffering, struggling, one is our own personal past experience. Maybe we've had something like this happen. And so you've had a relationship that has betrayed, has, someone has betrayed you. And you're talking to this person, and you're thinking about the way you were betrayed one time. And you're tempted then to map onto that person your experiences of betrayal. Oh yeah, the same thing happened to me. All sorts of problems with that. One is that you end up kind of hijacking their story. You've been on the other end of this. You've, wanted, you've shared something that's important to you, maybe kind of a struggle you're facing with someone. And they say, oh yeah, the same thing happened to me. And then they're off on their story. And like, well, wait a minute, what about me? This was my time. You know, you're, you're robbing, you're, you're taking our plane and taking it to Cuba, and I, I, I wasn't planning to go to talk about you. I'm struggling right now. So as a helper of others, we have to make sure that we don't steal their story. Uh, one thing I, I want to encourage you to not say to people, oh, yeah, I, I know exactly what you're feeling. Now, you've been on the other end of that too, haven't you? And you're all sorts of options in your mind. One is, no, you don't. Or, how could you? I have hardly begun to share anything. So, here's what I want to say. None of you have ever experienced exactly what another human has experienced. And you're really not serving that person. Here's my goal. Here's my goal. If I can so listen to that other person and understand and enter their world that they conclude 
oh, you really do understand where I'm at. That's far better than you pre-announcing, oh, I understand where you're at. Let the other person draw that conclusion. I don't know if this is quite the same uh, analogy of Proverbs, but the Proverbs verse that says, let another person praise you and not you yourself. I'd rather let another person conclude that I really understand that person and not me draw that conclusion. It's a very helpful perspective. So we might gain, we might make assumptions about the other person based on our own experience, or we might make it based on knowledge we gain from observation and study. So you're reading a really good book, I think, side by side. And some of you may have read Instruments of Redeemer's Hands, and maybe you're reading some other books that talk about people and counseling. And, or you're here in the training here, and you might... Think of, I'll give you a little story today of someone I counseled. You might say, well, I remember when, when Bob Jones went, did, I remember what he did with that person or what that person felt when Bob talked with him. And you're tempted to map that onto your friend. Don't do that. Or your experience of working with other people. Some of you have done ministry with others. You've done, you've done light counseling with others. And uh, you're saying to yourself, I've been down this path before. Here's this person who's very fearful or depressed. I've worked with two or three people like that in the last year or two. I know what to do. I know what they're feeling. No, you don't. That person that you're working with now is not the same people that you've worked with before. So there's this major danger that we bring of making assumptions. That's why what I said about the Deb story here, the previous slide was to remind us that you don't know what Deb is going through just because you may know what other people go through when they've been betrayed by um, um, a husband or a boyfriend or girlfriend or wife. Mm -hmm. Base your interpretations on sound conclusion gained through careful listening. So that's going to be the antidote to the assumptions is learning to be a good listener. We'll come back to some of those texts I printed for you um, a little bit later. Let me, let me finish this one part and then have uh, time for discussion. Is there, I, I want to make sure that I cover a certain amount before we take a break, but we will come back to some of the questions if we could. The general perspective, third, we're trying to move progressively from the situation toward the heart. And, and what that typically will look like is... We listen to the situation, what's going on. We begin to transition it. How are you handling that? How are you responding? What's, what's going on within you in the midst of this? And then we're moving from even how they're behaving or how they're feeling to what is it they're living for ultimately. And so our questions will get us there. Okay? Oh, go ahead. If you have a question, we'll go ahead and we'll get into the next section. Yeah. I was wondering a little bit about how you got into the situation. In other words, why did the pastor call you to talk to Deb? In other words, Deb didn't call you necessarily. Right. And how do you broach that like that? I'm, it wouldn't be very appropriate for some strange guy in the church to call Deb. And sure. By the way, I heard I should probably reverse it. I, maybe this will be more that... Uh, the pastor's not going to call you a guy, maybe. He'll call well, I know, him. but I mean, I'm just saying, you know, a little bit, how do you get it? How did you get into the situation in the first place, you know? Um, 
and I'm just how does a pastor line up somebody with dead? I'm going to have to put that one on hold because that's a whole other discussion about how. But I'm just, I'm just yeah. saying a little bit now. Why did you get yourself? Why did you insert yourself into Deb's life? Right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just a story in this case. Uh, it would depend on the situation. This could happen in your church. Oh sure. I'm, in fact, I know that it has happened in your church because I've been involved with some situations where a couple of you have been the persons that that Pastor Tom has gone to. And then I've maybe gotten involved to assist a little bit as well. So, uh, yeah. I was just trying to illustrate one aspect uh, on that. I just want to say that another assumption that we make is that we know it, even if we know the person, the person has shared things that we don't necessarily assume once it's happened that what they said before is still true. (coughs) You know what I mean? Their, 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 Their defense and what they were saying and how they were presenting the situation to the church, to the to the public, it's not necessarily really what their emotions are after the fact. Yeah. So the 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 you can't emphasize enough the importance of us us one on one, just trying to enter and listen and see what's going on. Let me go ahead and uh, uh, say some things about the questions here. Asking good questions. So when when you talk about good questions, and then I want to get into. Um, good listening, and then we'll lay out a bit of a model of how to pull all this together. So getting to know the person through good questioning. Two kinds of questions, well, several categories. Here's one, closed versus open questions. Closed questions can be answered with a yes or no. Open questions, open-ended questions cannot be answered with a yes or a no. So here's a person struggling with some marital issues. You ask, do you have a good marriage? What kind of question is that? Because whatever they answer will only tell you that according to their understanding of your word good, they either agree or not agree. So what would be a better way to get into that? Tell me about your marriage. Yeah, tell me about your marriage. How would you describe your marriage? How would you rate your marriage? Uh, Scale of zero to ten, how would you rate your marriage? Well, it's right now it's about a four. Okay. What what might get it from a four to a seven? Well, if we learned how to communicate. Okay. Well, now we're we're making some progress there. Um, so the general questions. The uh, left hand column requires little information. Right hand column requires the person to select and self disclose. Now. Look at the bottom row there. These are five first words in questions that are pretty much always going to be closed. Is, are, did, do, will, and I could add would, have, has, can, could, will, will, uh, if you want that, would, have, has, can, could. Can someone here, if you don't do it this second, think about during the break and then come back to me, Come up with a question that begins with is, are, did, do, will, that I cannot answer by saying yes or no. There's your challenge. Uh, no one yet has come up with a question. Maybe you'll be the, maybe you'll break the curve here, and I will be able to say it was Christ Covenant Church <laughs> in October of 2015. That, that successfully uh, overcame my challenge. 
is or did? Those questions. And the reason I actually put those there is because as I've worked with some of our practicum students, either at Southeastern or over at, at Open Door, um, what happens is they start their question, uh, do you, and they, they catch themselves. They're asking questions that end up steering people and they're closed-ended. It's like the, the, the prosecutor's leading you. Instead of saying more general questions, what was that like? So, the other side of it is who, what, where, when, why, how. And some of you learn this somewhere, either in grammar school or high school yourself, or you're a homeschooling parent, as I did, and I learned using the Institute for Excellence in Writing by Andrew Poodle years ago. Some of you know those materials, I'm sure. Uh, the five W's and an H. And I had to train my kid to think about five W's and an H. So some of you have used that material? Yeah, I don't know how popular it is today. This was 20 years ago or 10, 15 years ago. Um, 10 years ago, I should say. As a general rule of ministry, use open-ended questions. There may be some exceptions to that. And here's the beauty of this moment, I hope, for you. I hope that this week, you're going to start catching yourself. This has changed the way I talk with friends and small group life, my marriage. Um, it really is a very effective, and it's such a small thing to learn right now, but it's very important to help get to know the person. The second kind of category here would be extensive versus intensive. Extensive, asking a little bit about a lot of topics. Intensive, asking a lot about a little, about maybe one topic. So you see the comparisons in the two columns on your, in your notes. You scan with extensive, you probe. Survey broadly, skin the surface, wide-angle lens, shotgun, if you will, on the left-hand side, rifle, if you will, on the right-hand side. Which to use and when? Both are profitable. Let me give you an example of a kind of an extensive question thing that might help. You're, you're sitting down with someone, you don't know them that well, but they're sharing some struggles, and you ask them, so... What's, what's going on in your world? How are things... Well, I'm really, really frustrated. Um, our landlord said that they're going to raise the rent come January 1st for the new lease. And, um, you know, I'm really frustrated. My wife, she just spends too much money here. And my son just crashed the car. It's going to cost us all this to replace it. And this church that I go to, they're like trying to do a big fun drive at the end of the year. I just feel so much pressure in my life. Now, what are you hearing, right? There's a mega theme going on there. There's money issues, and it's related to how am I going to provide and, and solve all these problems there. You're hearing a lot. In terms of more formal counseling, session one on into session two will tend to tap all the different areas of their life. We want to know something about their health, about their relationships, about their religion, um, about their employment, uh, family, children, things like that. We want to get some generalities. And then we might decide 
to begin to kind of go more into the area they want to go into. Or an area you think is important, you might probe a little bit. Now you get a little more intensive with your questions, not just extensive. Okay, so those kinds of uh, different kinds of questions can help us. As a general rule, we move progressively from extensive to intensive. First session, second time I meet with someone, I'm still just getting to know them. It's fairly broad. But by the time we start meeting a couple more times, we're really talking about the same focus thing each time now as we move into that, that area there. The third kind of category to think about here would be the use of searching questions. These are questions that some of them are just pure rhetorical. They're just questions you want to let sit and let the person talk to God about. Others are going to be deeper ones that um, you would like the person to interact with you so you can get to know the person. But I've listed for you uh, several examples from the scriptures, Old Testament as well as Jesus. Notice the first two passages actually have three questions. Where are you? Who told you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I command you not to eat from? Or the, uh, the Hagar narrative in Genesis 16, which we'll get to uh, this morning. Uh, look at Isaiah 55. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Ezekiel 18. Why will you die, O house of Israel? Don't you see the path you're on? Why, why are you going down this, this path of self-destruction? Or our Lord in Matthew 7. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye? Pay no attention to the plank in your own eye. Or, or one of my favorite ones, which is, it really has a, a note of rebuke, but there is still hope embedded, is Luke 24. Why do you look for the living among the dead? Well, what do you expect? Yeah, he's gone. Well, he, he told you he was not going to be here. Why, why are you searching for his body? He said he was going to be risen from the grave. Some uh, personal ministry examples. And here would point you to the back of your binder where you have David Pallison's uh, x-ray questions. There's 35 of them. And I've given you the chapter reference for that in the book that Pallison wrote. It's actually a collection of his best essays, x-ray questions. All these questions in, the, in that uh, appendix there are all aimed at addressing treasures, beliefs, motives, what we live for, what is the functional God in our lives. And he, he really just does 35 different ways to get at the same basic thing. The human heart. Now, back to the examples I've given you here, which some of those would overlap with Pallison's as well. Uh, these are some of the ones that I like to use. Where do you see God in this? Or similarly, uh, what do you think God is up to? How do you think God looks at you? What do you think God thinks about that?
a lot of just, again, these are all open-ended. We'll just go right to the last one for the sake of our time this morning. How would you like people to pray for you? That is incredibly revealing to you. So the person who has a very serious back injury, who's in constant pain, and you say to that person, how can I pray for you? And the person says, well, pray I'd find relief. Pray that I would get a good doctor to help me decide whether surgery is or isn't a good thing. You know, there's different views out there. But you find that all the answers to your question, how can I pray for you, center around physical relief, circumstantial relief, instead of, well, pray for my back. It's killing me. I need to find a doctor. But but also, would you pray for me that I would learn how to find contentment and learn how not to be so crabby towards my wife and take it out on my kids all the time and those spiritual matters, not just the physical body matters. And we'll get to that later. I've got a section at the end of the class, at the end of the course here for us, where we talk about how to do that in conversations, how to kind of shift in a, in a careful way. One other thing here before we take a break. It's the little question under uh, number three there before you get to number four. What do we gain by asking searching questions? Let me, let me give my answer to this. Good questions like the ones we're talking about not only gain information, they themselves begin to instruct. When someone comes to you or you move into their world and they share all their struggles, typically what you're hearing is all sorts of horizontal level stuff. When I sit down with someone, they're going to share all the things that are going on in their world. It's all about other people. It's all about maybe their physical body, their job, their finances. But typically what's absent is God. And so a open-ended question that's a searching question says, where do you see God in all this? I haven't opened my Bible yet, but I've begun to instruct them. You see how that's an instructive question? It, it reminds them that there is a God and that I at least believe that he's involved in your world and that he's, he's up to something in your world. And suddenly, they haven't been thinking on that. They've only been thinking on the internal and horizontal and me and my family and me and my back or me and my job and me and my finances. And they haven't really been thinking about the broader issue of God. So a simple question like that, it becomes very instructive. Or even the ones that I said before, when you're shifting towards how they handle it. How are you handling all this? See, there, there's an instructive component to that. Because I'm saying to them, you know, you have choices here. There are ways that you can handle this that are either good or bad, and I want to help you today. You see, so even a good question becomes instructive. Uh, Paul Tripp elsewhere puts it this way, uh, Insightful people are insightful, not because they have the right answers, but because they know the right questions to ask. And just like any skilled profession, 
whether it's medical arts or architecture or whatever skilled profession out there, the experts are the ones who know the right questions to ask, not just have the right answers. And I think that's what we want to grow in our skill towards ministry to people. Okay, five-minute break. We've got a lot I'd like to try to cover today, time-wise. I want to keep us till the 11 o'clock commitment, so uh, stretch, get something to drink, restroom, and come back. Hey, I want to make one clarifying comment on the personal ministry example questions I just gave you. You, uh, the second one, and some of the ones similar like this, what do you think God is up to? Here, one thing that's important for me to say is I, their answer to that question is not necessarily going to be accurate. I asked that question more to get God onto the table. We'll go to the, his word to try to discern what he is up to or not up to. So these are just more opening statements to gain access and probe to get to know the person. Now, let me cover some more things here, because I do want to share a case situation. Common pitfalls. First, don't slavishly follow a prepared list. Now, if you're going to, if you're going to meet with someone, it's okay for you in advance to think about several questions. And I think if you're doing anything close to formal counseling or discipling, you're meeting with someone regularly... Now, I think it's good to prepare and advance some questions, but just make sure that you don't you know, follow them like a script. Because the person's going to veer left or right when you talk to them. Um, those of you who've had any formal training, oh, that sounds too I've had some training in doing discipling, what we call discipling, where you might take um, some good curriculum materials, and teach a person how to read their Bible, and how to memorize scripture, and how to pray, and the importance of the church, and maybe about baptism, and Lord's Supper, and just some basics for new Christians and all. Whatever that is, or you've led someone through uh, walking through the Gospel of Mark, uh, the book The Walk, some people have used, nice tool. I trust you found this to be true. If you're going to have any meaningful, quote, discipling, you will be getting into their life issues. And, and so for me, and this is one of my soapboxes at Southeastern, is that to say that counseling is somehow disconnected from discipleship <laughs> is just crazy. You, will, you cannot do good discipling and teach people how to read their Bible with any kind of relationship forming where some of their problems aren't going to come out. We've got uh, one of my best students has had a lot of training before she came to Southeastern with Crew, uh, Campus Crusade for Christ, now just called Crew. And she's had all this training. She's loved doing discipling. Her ministry has now just taken off because she has a whole new piece. She knows how to counsel in those problem areas where in the past she would just come to a place and talk about how to read the Bible or how to do a... uh, uh, inductive Bible study might be the technique or the tool that, but the person would talk about a fight with their roommate or a breakup with their boyfriend and she'd be oh well okay sorry to hear that let's get back to how do you do expository <laughs> study and, and now she's at oh, well, uh, now tell me about that 
And so she has these broader skills. And since this is a church that I know is committed to helping people grow in basic Christian faith and disciplines, and I assume some kind of discipleship materials are at least sometimes used, at least by some of you, I'm praying that this will just give you more confidence to be able to not have to say, well, you can't talk about that's a counseling. Go talk to the pastors. Go talk to a counselor about that. We need to get back to how do you do an inductive study at this point. So it's both and, not either or. I hope your, your skills are, you get a, a broader repertoire, more tools, so to speak, in your ministry toolbox. Uh, back to this, uh, the, the outline. Don't ask binary or menu. When you said that to your husband, was he angry or, or was he sad? You see what I've just done? I've locked them into only two possible answers. What would be a better way to say that? Yeah, how did he respond? When you said that to your husband, how did he, how did he respond? I happen to think that sometimes those menu questions that we give to people, I think sometimes they proceed from arrogance. And let me explain why. When you said that to your husband, did he respond with anger or, or was he sad? Because I, the great counselor, know that the most common responses in this situation are going to be anger or sadness. And I already know that. The only thing I need to know is which category of the two major categories of response you fall into. <laughs> We're almost strutting our stuff a little bit when we say, were they feeling this way or that way? Why are we, why are we saying that? We're kind of showing we know. What I would rather do is, how are they responding and just listen. And then begin to, you can begin to comment. There's places where your wisdom will come out. But at this point, you're going you're gonna to box them in if you uh, do those kinds of questions. Two or more questions at once. Uh, you know, what, what did you say to your husband, and how did he respond? Um, I'm angry. And he said, I'm angry. Okay. How about just, what did you say to your husband? Answer. And then, how did he respond to that? You see the difference? Just slow it down. Uh, beginning counselors certainly talk too much. And their questions are very complicated. And they're long sometimes. And I've watched that, and I've been on both ends. I've done it, and I've heard it, and I've it's been done to me. Don't settle for non-specific answers. How did that talk go with your son? Uh, it was good. <laughs> and you're like, and? Um, oh, um, so it, it was good. Oh, I'm glad. Um, what, what made it good? Now, see, that's just an open-ended, simple question. What made it good? Now, not, what made it good? Good. Was it because your son showed his interest in you, or was it be See, now I'm getting into menus, and these are closed-ended. Was it? That's a closed-ended question, right? Um, so what made it good? Okay, let's talk about good listening now. Good listening. 
I get excited on this topic, and you'll see why in just a moment. Because God is our model and motivator. And let me think of two subcategories here. First, that the persons in the Godhead listen to each other. So many years ago now, I did a very detailed study of using my computer. Every place in the Bible where words like listen, hear, ears, and then mouth, speak, all those different words were used. I pulled this all together, read through them all, categorized them, came up with basically a division of listening and a division of speaking, took the listening verses and made divisions there. And I was surprised to see, in John's Gospel particularly, how many times God listens to God. There is a, a intra within the Trinity, an intra-Trinitarian communion going on, communication going on. And Jesus, of course, brings that to bear as he's on earth, and he talks about he listens to his Father, his Father listens to him, the Spirit listens to the Father and the Son, the Spirit's going to come, and he will bring what we say to him. So there's some mysteries there within the Trinity. And then we have all those other verses with God listens to us. My favorite story, well, one of my, actually the first two, the Exodus one also, but the, the, uh, the Hagar narrative here, I encourage you to read that and gave you that observation worksheet to work on here. Let me walk that. Let me walk you through that. I've got it on the screen now. So you sh- you tell me the verbs here where God does something. The angel of the Lord being a expression of the Lord, okay, um, an appearance of God, a pre-incarnate appearance of God. So what's the first thing you saw? The first verb. Okay, so the angel of the Lord found Agar. He uh, sought her out. She was not heading towards God. She was running from Abram and Sarai. She's an Egyptian slave woman. Had enough of this. Mistreated. She contributed to it. She wasn't innocent. It's mutual, but she was mainly mistreated. She flees. She's going home. And the angel of the Lord finds her. This is Luke 19.10. You know that verse? For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. I love this verb. The angel found her when she was not looking. This is the hound of heaven, right? Pursuing this woman. Okay? The next one is what? Yeah, and you'll see a couple of those. Verse 8, he speaks to her. I'm going to have to bypass. There's some good questions we could ask about why he sends her back. I'm just going to have to, for the sake of the discussion today, bypass that. So in verse 8, he said, go down to verse 9, angel Lord told her. Verse 10, the angel added. What's the next one? Good, I'm glad you caught that. There's a promise here. 
God promises, I will so increase your descendants. And even though we're not talking about uh, the elect line, it's Ishmael, um, nevertheless, there is grace that God shows to this woman and to her son. So we have this promise of blessing. So what we have both thus far is here's a God who finds us, who speaks to us, and who promises blessing to us. But it, 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 it gets better. Okay, what's the next one? Another said, right? And now what's the next one? Yes. And uh, don't miss the thing right before it that's embedded in the name. Okay? What is the great confession of faith of traditional Judaism? Remember what it's called? The Shema. The Shema. And where, where, where does that come from? You know? Deuteronomy 6. And what does the word Shema mean? Okay, it's the first word in Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel. It's called the Shema. Okay? So here we have El, God, Ishmael, the Lord hears, or the Lord has heard. So, a God who finds her, a God who speaks to her, a God who promises blessing to her, a God who hears her, the God who listens. And what's the next one we would see? Yeah, I think uh, we have another spoke in verse 13. And then we have God who sees me. For I have now seen the one who sees me. And uh, the the name of the well, Be'er Lahai Roy. Roy is the word for see there. God sees. You know, remember the song by Michael Card, El Shaddai? You know that song? Uh, I know others have popularized it, but um, to the outcast on her knees, you're the God who truly sees. And I'm sure that must refer to um, Hagar here. Sing on, sing on, folks. At least some of you. Some of you shouldn't sing on, maybe. Oh, quietly, I bet. I mean, you shouldn't do that. All right, let's look at this next one here. Oh, you know, I don't have that. It's only in your notes. Exodus chapter 2. Here's, here's where the Exodus really begins. The Exodus didn't begin when the Red Sea opened. It didn't begin with the ten plagues. It didn't even begin, in my opinion, with a burning bush. It begins right here. Where the people of God are suffering. And they cry out. They, they groan. They cry out. Their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning. And he remembered. The Exodus begins with the ears of God. Who listens to the cries of his people. Go to chapter 3, printed for you there. Now this is after the burning bush. Now the Lord is going to explain to Moses what the Lord is up to. And he says, I have heard them crying out 
and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them. Not the last time that God has come down, right? The incarnation of our, of our Savior Christ. I have come down to rescue them. Verse 9, And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. Again, a God who sees, a God who hears. So, so this is what redeemers do. They, they see, they hear, they feel concern, and then they swing into action. May I say, this is what loving friends at Christ's Covenant Church do. They see, they hear, if you will, they feel, they, they, they manifest concern, and then they move into ministry. Isaiah, surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor is ear too dull to hear. It goes on to say it's the sin is the problem. I like First Peter. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. The ears are attentive to their prayer. I had this picture, folks, of, of, of God in heaven leaning over, you know, from the proverbial clouds and, and cupping his ear to hear what Bob is saying in prayer. He wants to hear me. He's listening. He's concerned. He wants to know. Psalm 40. There's actually a few more that I didn't include. but Psalm 40. I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. No one has put this better than Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Christians have forgotten that the ministry of listening. Just have you ever even heard of that language? Have you ever just paused to think of the, the ministry of listening? The ministry of listening has been committed to them by him who is himself the great listener and whose work they should share. So, why do I get excited about this? Because there is nothing more godlike that you can do for a friend than be a good listener. Other godlike things, that's not the only godlike thing. But there's nothing that's more godlike, if I'm reading these passages rightly, than to be a good listener. So we're asking good questions, letter C, letter D here. We're getting to know through good listening. What does that look like? Now some of the biblical directives that we have. Actively and attentively, caringly and compassionately. Look at the, uh, let's just make a comment or two on the Proverbs 18. The fool finds no pleasure, but delights in hearing his own opinions. Uh, Proverbs 18, 13. He who answers before listening, you're a fool. Fools answer before listening. Fools also do what verse uh, 17 gets at. The first to present his case seems right till another comes forward and questions him. That's the Bible's way of saying there are two sides to the stories you hear. And let me encourage you particularly, and probably more so you ladies are going to have more opportunity to talk to wives one-on-one than we men have to talk to husbands one-on-one. Wives, women tend to open up things quicker and you've got more relationships usually going on there. Ladies, just know you really are only hearing one side. Not that you accuse the person of being a liar or anything like that. But just where you can, just keep that in the back of your head. I'm still only getting one side of this. 
And I, I've seen, I've been burned in my ministry by really not trying to get both sides or trying to get the parties together. That's a whole other discussion on, on how to do counseling. But just remember that uh, we want to be active listeners and realize there might be more than one side. In fact, I always say there's actually three sides to every story. There's his side, her side, and God's side. And, you know, and I have fourth side, because I have a side too. And I'm not always on God's side. I want to be. All sorts of things we could say about number three. I think for the sake of time, let me see if there's one I need to gear, uh, drill down on. Um, yeah, probably not. I want to make sure we cover some other stuff here. Again, if you want to go deeper on this, both the Welch little book, but also some of the stuff that Paul Tripp does in Instruments Redeemer's Hands would be my next recommended thing for you. Number four, be honest. To try to be a good listener. Don't be afraid to interrupt. To confess the concentration lapse. I have never fallen asleep in counseling someone. But I've been drowsy. I can remember very clearly this one woman, so kind. And I was just, it's the end of the day and I was just very tired and I, she knew it. She said, Pastor Bob, you look really tired today. Well, that was her polite way of saying, you're not listening to me. You're falling asleep on me. Well, and you have to admit that. I, I'm sorry, I really didn't hear what you said. Or what you said to me is very important. Can you repeat that? And maybe you have had a hard day. And maybe in some cases you can say, listen, I, I'm really struggling this afternoon or tonight with tiredness. And I didn't quite get that. Or you'll have the person who will, who will talk a lot and will punctuate every couple sentences with, you know, you know what I mean. And, you know, I, when people feel this way, yesterday, you know what I mean? You, you know, it's just these you knows keep coming out. At some point, you may have to say, no, I don't know. Can you slow down? Or, what you're saying to me is so important. Or just can it just give me a moment to think about what you're saying? It's very important. I like to think I'm honoring the person. I'm showing that care, and admitting a, a concentration lapse can actually um, draw you closer to that person. Now, if you're doing it all the time and you're looking at your cell phone or you're, you know, you're in a more public thing and you're always looking around, that's rude, right? And you have to learn to concentrate. But if you have lapses, just admit it. And then this other skill that we talked about a little bit at the beginning today, let me come back to it now. Validate, you understand, by clarifying and confirming. Now, clarifying is what we've already been kind of talking about, asking for definitions, for example. So you know, how would you describe your marriage? Well, it's, it's a bad marriage. Okay, well, what, what do you mean by bad? So... Let's define the terminology. What do you mean by a bad marriage? This was the most classic case I've had in my ministry experience. Working with this particular couple who had a 
pretty bad marriage situation. And I sensed that she was in danger of, um, of an affair. She worked with a lot of different guys. She was um, someone the world would see as very attractive. And I think she was in danger of that. And this guy really made some major mistakes in his marriage, some serious sins he committed. And I think she was at the end of her rope. So I had some good sessions with them, some progress. I saw her on a Sunday morning, and I um, kind of pulled her aside and said, how, how are you doing? And she said this to me, I'm looking elsewhere. And kind of my jaw dropped and my heart sank. And thankfully, I followed up. Mm-hmm. What, what do you mean you're looking elsewhere? She said, well, I've had my eyes on my husband the whole time. I'm learning to look up to the Lord. In the <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking elsewhere. We all know what that means, right? Well, I thought I knew what it meant, and I'm glad that I didn't say or react. I'm looking to the Lord. You know, this happened ten years ago. I'm going to talk to her one day. She's still in our church, and their marriage has been restored much better now. See, do you remember that day? Because I, I remember it vividly. I went home immediately, wrote it down. I said, "This is a classic example." of learning to ask a good follow-up question. (laughs) Any Andy Griffith show fans, you have to remember the great um, the episode called High Noon in Mayberry. Who's a fan? Anyone? Uh, We don't have that many of you all left. Luke Comstock is someone that uh, Andy had wounded in a cast station holdup. Luke goes to jail, and he shot him in the leg, and in jail, his leg got worse. Finally, he's released, and he's out, and he wants to come see Andy. And, of course, Barney, the great protector of Andy, knows exactly. He's wanting to see... uh, Oh, the letter read been wanting to see you for a long time to set things straight between us. And Barney says he's coming now to take revenge. Revenge. R-E-V-E-N-G. No E at the end. Revenge, Ange. Why was he, why did he come? Anyone know? He came to thank Andy. His life of crime had been diverted. So I remember seeing that episode. That's a good example of he wants to come see you to set things straight. Ask for definition. Ask for an example. So how's how's the marriage going? Well, we 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 fight a lot. What does that mean? Does that mean fight? David Pallison, one of my mentors, once counseled a couple who literally pulled guns on each other. (laughs) They didn't shoot. It was threatening. But Salvatica. Now, that's that's a fight. But some other people, a fight is they raise their voice. And and 
Have you had this experience, and maybe I'm alone on this, but with uh, if you have teenagers or just older, you know, middle school type age kids, you and your spouse are having, I think, um, not necessarily a sinful, and maybe I'm just justifying myself, but my kids have said, will you and mom stop fighting? I'm thinking, I don't see that as fighting, but for him it's fighting. So what do we mean by fight? So what do you mean by that? Can you give me an example? What was an example of a fight you had? And again, it might be pretty serious physical. It could be just uh, a verbal fight. Um, why were you upset? Ask the person to explain why he believes or why he does. Why did you say that? Okay, so these are the kinds of things we're trying to clarify. Then we want to confirm. Let me, let me see if I understand what you're saying. Here's what I hear you saying. I hear you saying, and just go ahead and summarize that. And then ask, is, is that what's going on? Do I understand you right? Am I hearing you right? And you really have to make sure you invite the person to be free to say no. Am I, am I really hearing you well? Or, or how, how would you steer that a little differently? Because I don't want them just to please me. That's the danger when we're trying to minister to people. They'll, they'll say what we want. They think we want them to say what we want to hear. And I have to labor to say, no, tell me really what's going on here. I might understand. Okay, now, the last part of this morning, we've got 15 minutes, and I want to give a case example, is going to be letter E. And then the conclusion will flow into that, or from this. Minister based on your interpretation. So next week, we talk about how to begin to bring God's truth to bear. But we can't do that until we understand. We can't do that until we take the information we've gained and try to put some kind of organization to it. So my counsel to you is use the six-box version of the three-tree model. It's what we talked about in, I guess, uh, the very first week. You can get more information on this in another book, very readable, by Tim Lane and Paul Tripp, called How People Change. It's very similar. They don't use the boxes, they use the trees. There's a few differences in the way they draw the tree, but it's the same concept. We're all taking this from the same source, David Pallison, their mentor, my mentor as well. The six-box version. Now, I hope you remember some of this. I'm going to review it with you. And then I'll give you an example. So first, so let's walk through the boxes. Okay, so you have box one here. I'm going to call this box 1A. This is the heat. These are the hardships. This is where we would think of the past mistreatment, if there's been abuse. Here's where we think of the present pressures the person faces, or even the future things that they're afraid might happen. This, this lump, this job situation that might end, past, present, future hardships. Here's what I have done, literally and physically. I've sat down with someone in an informal session. I probably haven't jotted down any notes. In a more formal counseling session, I jot down notes. 
Either way, after the session ends or the, the breakfast time ends, I go and pull out a three-tree model or the six boxes and start plugging in information that I know about this person, that I've gained from that time together. What are their hardships? Let's put in categories. Uh, what that actually would look like in this person's world. Let me, let me do it this way. Let me, let me tell you about the person. I'll just uh, I'll model it this way. Let me tell you about my friend. His name is Gene. Someone I had uh, pastored. Um, well, counseled. He actually wasn't a member of my church. He was part of a different, a different church. Um, here's the situation that Gene faced in terms of heat in his world. Um, married with three kids, okay marriage. Nothing great, some problems, not the presenting major problem that led him to come to me for counseling. Uh, aging mom, who had some medical issues, who is now living with them. So you got three kids, age six, eight, eleven, Christian, Christian wife, Mom living with them. A older brother who was very successful, and there was some issues there, but nothing major. And these are just little things. He worked in a plant maintenance. Uh, he was in um, um, work maintenance at a, at a plant, and it was hard work. He didn't like his job. That's another issue here. He didn't like his work. They had laid off the third shift because of the economic reasons, but they did give the other shift workers some overtime. So he was doing overtime for financial reasons. He needed more money. There were some layoffs rumored. He also was a non-union guy in a essentially union plant. It wasn't a, a place where, it wasn't a closed, a closed shop thing where he had to be in the union, but most of the people were. And he felt a lot of pressure from his boss and co-workers to pressure uh, to do that, uh, to join the union. But he didn't want to. He had some convictions about uh, the way union dues were used for abortion and things like that. That's kind of the situation he's in. Now, the occasion for contacting me is he had what would be described as a panic attack, panic episode. And he was afraid he might be having a heart attack. So he uh, self-checked him, himself into an ER. ER doctors did all the things they would typically do and basically found nothing physiologically wrong but said, you should probably talk to a counselor or since you're a churchgoer, and you'll talk with your pastor and all that. Uh, his, uh, the church did not have a lead pastor at the time, so I was helping the church out. They were in between pastors, so he contacted me. could say something about what we would call the do. Now, I only point this out just because it kind of balances out things. Not everything is as bad as it could be. In some cases, the do becomes an occasion for sin when we're ungrateful for things or we get an entitlement mentality. He had a, a decent life in other ways. Um, his wife and children were, were good. They were healthy. He was basically healthy aside from this one episode. His wife was a Christian. The, the job paid pretty good. 
again, he, he did choose to do overtime, but he would have survived without that. Um, the medical tests were normal. They were negative. Um, he's in a good church, so not everything was bad for this particular guy. How is he handling all the heat in his life? And he's the one who said, I know why I had this anxiety episode. It's because of all this pressure that I'm under. Bad fruit for him. He talks about depression. and you know, I, It's not that I pulled out a diagnostic and statistical manual and tried to say, well, you are clinical or not. First of all, uh, I, I'm not trained in making those diagnoses because that's not my tool. Um, I'm sure if I did, I could make an educated guess. Well, if you saw a clinical psychologist, he would say this about you. All I know is he's depressed. Okay, I'm using that in a more elastic term, not in any technical term. You understand how this is not an, an exact science. The whole world of psychiatry, psychology, is there's no blood tests for depression. It's, uh, yeah. So, but also fear and anxiety, uh, low levels, but then it, it spikes into an anxiety attack. Some sleep problems, some confused thinking, uh, admitting suicidal thinking, no intentionality. You know, he's had those thoughts. Sometimes I feel like it'd be better to die. He was not in danger of that, but um, and he admits to not to some problems, to not being the best husband he could be. And, well, again, not major. I did talk to his wife. His wife was saying he's a good husband. Yeah, he's not perfect. And if we wanted to go down that path, I could tell you some bad things. But there's nothing that's problematic in a major way. So it's this low level of pressure and anxiety that spikes fears. This is not a. Uh, this is not maybe the the worst kind of counseling situation. It's not a marriage falling apart, but it's really common. These kinds of things. What were the root issues going on? So we think of the bad roots. And here, um, sinful WAE, words, actions, emotions. Here, sinful beliefs and motives. Let me give you a couple of the themes that I saw as we talked. <clears throat> Fear of people. And this is a common theme for all. I would say every one of us has some measure of fear of people. If you doubt that, then... All you have to do is read the opening chapter or chapters of Ed Welch's wonderful book, When People Are Big and God is Small, because he, he talks about all the different ways we fear people. And then he says this, if you think you still are immune from the fear of people, let me give you one word. Remember what it is? Evangelism. Gotcha, he writes. Yeah. Every one of us has some measure of fear of people, and it comes out in our fear of being more evangelistic. In this case, particularly being susceptible to this pressure from his boss and his co-workers about joining the union and all that. Another major heart thing, this is really common, folks, I think, um, discontentment. There's this, this general malaise that he has. He, he, he wants to be in a better job he wants to deal with, uh, have, a, have a better job. He wants to pursue a new career. He's just not really content where he is. Here's another heart theme for him. We all deal with this too. Financial security. Layoff rumors. 
he might be next. He, he didn't have that high of a rank even in the, in the seniority. He could be next. <clears throat> Let me share some of the themes that we talked about. We met for about six or seven times. And as we met, just really trying to understand where he's at in the first session or two, here's some of the themes from Scripture. We talked a lot about God's promise to be with him in hardships, particularly on the job. We look, for example, at Genesis 39. The Lord was with Joseph at the beginning of the chapter and at the end of the chapter. It's almost like a bookends of Genesis 39. In there, you've got all sorts of mistreatment, including Pharaoh's, um, Potiphar's wife accusing him and Potiphar throwing him into jail and all that. We talked about learning contentment from Philippians 4. There's an article that I had written on Philippians 4 about learning contentment in all your circumstances with an emphasis on the word learning. Mm -hmm. There's two verbs there. There's synonyms, two different Greek verbs going on in that passage in Philippians 4, 11 through 13. With, um, I can do all things to him who gives me strength. Being the context, I can learn to handle the hardships from the Lord. A passage that we enjoyed happened to be one that I had been studying and preaching on. So here's another uh, thing for you in terms of ministry to other people. What is the Lord teaching you? Where have you been recently in devotions? Where have you been in terms of a sermon series that Pastor Tom has done or a Sunday school class that you're in? What passage has been something to you? You might find that's a passage you go to. Now you don't force that passage if it doesn't fit, but if you're under good teaching and preaching, which you're being here, you got some sermons recently that fit. Life experiences. So I went to Haggai, chapter 2, where Haggai, uh, God through Haggai says, in the midst of their depression, discouragement, they're, they're bummed out because the temple they're rebuilding now is nothing as glorious as Solomon's temple was. And the older folks particularly are discouraged about this. The older folks have the problem of nostalgia. They're looking back to the old days. And uh, they're, they're not excited about that. And they're disappointed. And probably there, there seems to be a work stoppage going on. And so God comes to them and says, Be strong, be strong, be strong. Three times. And work. And then he says, For my spirit is with you. As I covenanted with you when... I brought you out of Egypt. Now, they weren't alive, these folks. In other words, in your history, the nation, I have brought you, my spirit has been with you ever since. And that's what my friend Gene needed to know, that God's spirit will be with him. Uh, we particularly helped him put together a prayer based on some Bible reading he had done, a model prayer that he would pray on the way to work each day. Because that's when he would have the most anxiety, would be before he went to work. We talked about some of that depression, and I'll get to this at the last week when I just cover a bunch of little topics to give you some hints. But we talked a little bit about depression, particularly looked at Luke chapter 24, where the disciples on the road to Emmaus had just learned about their Lord's death, they heard some rumor about resurrection, but 
but they're not really believing it. And basically they're bummed out, they're downcast, they're discouraged, and they're heading towards Emmaus, and Jesus comes incognito, God keeps them from seeing that it's Jesus, and Jesus interviews them, what's going on, and they say, haven't you heard? And Jesus says, what, about what? And he said, the things that happened, and they say, the things that happened, and he, they narrate what's happened, and there's this key verb, you know, he died, blah, blah, blah. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. Mm-hmm. And, and if I can paraphrase at this point, we hoped he was going to redeem Israel, and he went and died on us. <laughs> you know, the, the irony is incredible, right? way he redeems as he died for us but they didn't get that but they were sad um, different versions say some say sad some say um, uh, gloomy or downcast and I'd be downcast and I guess sad I think uh, they were sad why because they put their hope in something that God had not guaranteed to happen at least not in the way that they had hoped and, and, and this was where for Gene he had put hopes in in various things, and they weren't coming to pass. In fact, in that passage, Jesus rebukes them. He says, the root of your sadness is your unbelief. You're putting your hope in something God has not guaranteed. That's one of the takeaways from that passage. Never put your hope in something God hasn't guaranteed. Don't live by small-age hopes and desires. Live by guarantees and promises. And uh, there's not a lot that God guarantees that have to do with the details of your dailies. Your name's not in the Bible like that. No, you have to live by the promises of God. Um, So we talked about some of those themes. God's grace, God's promises for them. There's a lot more I could say. One thing I have to add to point four. Me. I am part of the provision. You are part of the provision. You're not external to this. You're not just throwing Bible truths. You're there with the person. You are embodying Jesus. You're bringing hope. You're praying for the person. You're touching their arm or putting the arm around the person physically or metaphorically. You're entering their their world. And not just you, but your church, we hope. No, it's a unbelieving co-worker, it might just be you. But if they're coming to the church, I want to mobilize the body of Christ to minister here. Alright, i got to go quickly just to do some summaries with you here. Wrong way. Here we go. So let's walk back up now. What's the good route? Here's the good routes that I began to see as we prayed, discussed the scriptures, and he, he, he spent time with the Lord on his own. Identity as of the Son of the Living God. His identity tended to be, I'm a husband and I see my failure. I'm a dad, I see my failure. I'm a plant worker and everyone doesn't like me. I'm non-unionized when they want me to be unionized. I'm trying to find my identity in my job. We've all heard things like this. Men find their identity in their jobs and women, in some cases at least, find their identity in their home say, no, that's, that's not a biblical way to look at it. Men and women need to find their identity in Jesus. Now, you express your identity, right, in the job or in 
homemaker, whatever sphere God has put you men and women in. But so this whole identity thing was huge. This this goal of seeking to please Christ more than the boss or others. This whole matter of learning contentment. Learning to trust God for the income. Learning to pray. Learning to serve. These are some of the heart themes. Which then led to some good fruit. And we began to see good fruit. Um, He learned to pray about the job. And that helped a lot with the anxiety. He was able to work hard on the job to please the Lord, not out of resentment towards his boss. Something else that happened, though, he pursued some career counseling. He said he doesn't think this is the best for him. And, And so you can learn contentment and concurrently pray about maybe a better situation. That's not discontentment necessarily. Paul says something interesting in 1 Corinthians 7. Time fails me, but he he talks in 1 Corinthians 7. He says, basically, if you're a slave, if if your situation is out of being a slave, know that you are the Lord's free, free man. And if you're a master, you better remember, you're the Lord's slave. I love that balance. But then he says this also. If you're you're a slave, you're the Lord's free man. But if you can gain your freedom, it's okay to do that. And it was one of my props in um, my counseling training who who applied that to the whole vocational world. We've got to learn contentment. And if you're a subservient, you're low on the employee thing. Remember, you're, you're a prince or a princess, right? In God's economy, in God's eyes, you're glorious. And if you're a boss, remember, there's a boss over you, so don't get so high and mighty. But I also said, if you can improve your job lot, go ahead, it's not wrong. As long as it's not a desperate discontentment. discontentment. And so we talked about that, and he did. He sought some career counseling. And I could see that because he, he he's working with his hands in a mechanical situation. He was a very warm people person. I could easily see him being engaged in some other field than uh, just... Doing maintenance. Uh, more things, sake of time, I'll, I'll stop on that. So, this is an example of how you can take your conversations with someone and begin to think about these, um, think in terms of these categories. So, the first time I meet with someone, I can take that information from that session and kind of download it on, on this. Next time I meet with them, I go into that with a better understanding. I gain more information. What do I do? Then I can add to my chart. I can increasingly grow in my understanding. The six boxes become fuller and richer each time. The six boxes force me to think about connections when they might tend each time I meet with them to blame the heat. The boxes remind me, no. Fruit Bad fruit is not coming from the heat, it's coming from the heart. And, and what are the answers they need? And how do we help them put off the left side columns and, and move to the right? Okay, the last thing I have to say to you today is what I call the summary interpretive question. 
B, summary interpretive question. And it's in your notes. Now, I hope you can actually see the six boxes behind this particular question. How and why is this person not the person you met with three years ago, not your past experience, not what you heard me or Ed Welch talk about, but how does this person, how is this person responding to this situation in which God has placed him? So what boxes are embedded right there in that first half of the question? How and why? How is where? What box? Yeah, it would be box two. How are they currently responding to this situation? How? And why? Where's that? Box three. To this situation? Box one, right? One, one A, one B, kind of both sides of that. And now, the next half of the question. And what heart and behavior changes are biblically indicated? Heart changes? Box what? Five. Behavior? Box, box six, right. So you notice on the boxes that uh, box two and six are behavioral. We don't want to do what... Paul Tripp calls fruit stapling, just trying to change the external fruits. We want to talk about changes that have to happen from box three to five as well. Because three produces two, and five produces six. And how is the change going to happen from two and three to five and six? Box four. The Spirit of God taking the provisions, the truths of God's Word, and you, you're part of the provision, and the church, part of the provision, to help them have the different um, roots, learn to trust God, learn contentment, please God more than people, those mega-themes of Scripture, as they then bear fruit in concrete changes. We'll talk about all that next week. And get into what how how we help people with concrete changes. Okay? Lastly, homework to prepare for session four. There are four passages of scripture that I'll comment on that all have to do with the power of God's word itself. So I want to refresh us in that. These are not new truths to you folks at Christ's covenant. Secondly, memorize that interpretive question. I think it's worth you. Memorizing. If you were in an academic classroom, you would need to know this very well for an exam. And then in terms of the Welch read, I'm just trying to pace us a little bit. This will be, uh, what, 26 pages there. Okay? Now, it's 11-11. It's I'm going to stop officially, but I'll hang around up front here, and we'll leave that up there for you to write. Let me pray for us, for me too, and for each of us. Uh, we have a big outreach event this afternoon at our church, uh, Party on the Block, and uh, we've got all the inflatables and all that stuff going on, so that's sort of on my mind today to try to connect with lost people. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this uh, church congregation, and I know that the, uh, the commitments to Jesus, 
that are in this room and among the elders and uh, small group leaders. So we want to thank you again for that provision. We also want to thank you for the scriptures and for the way they challenge us and the way they model for us what it looks like to be a good listener. Thank you, God, for your listening to us all morning and promises to do that throughout our day. Guide us as we seek to draw near to people to understand them. Lord, forgive us for times we've made assumptions, for times we haven't uh, listened well, for times that we've been self-centered and even arrogant at times. So forgive us, Father. Thank you for Jesus and your spirit. Amen.